In an anechoic chamber, usually the floor is made out of wire mesh, and there are these absorbers below you as well. So there's no place for the sound to bounce off of. It's it's crazy. Um, and they're so quiet that uh, one of the most common sensations or complaints is if people spend quite a bit of time in there, especially by themselves, the loudest sound you hear is your own blood circulating. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, Mike Levitt, and we have our co-host today, uh, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen on the line. Welcome to the show, Elias. Hey, Mike. Great to be back. <laughs> Very excited about today. Absolutely. Me too. And and we also have on the line uh, uh, Brett Leonard. We've had him on before. He's a good friend of the program. We're excited to have him on. Um, he is a recording engineer, an audio researcher, and audio educator. Um, he's currently serving as the director of music technology uh, of mu uh, music technology programs um, at the University of Indianapolis. Uh, he's an active freelance recording engineer. He has worked on projects ranging from orchestras to progressive jazz, hip hop to classic rock, including projects with artists such as Lenny Pickett, uh, Matt uh, Hemovitz, Jerry Douglas, Cecile McLaurin, Solvent, and the National Youth Orchestra of Canada. Um, he currently serves as the chief recording engineer of the Chelsea Music Festival in New York. Um, in 2007, he began BLP Audio, a company providing recording services, acoustical consulting, system design, and equipment rental. Um, and he provides consulting services to numerous private studios, event spaces, um, performance venues, um, and he's... Uh, he focused as a researcher. He focuses on spatial audio and the interplay between acoustics, instruments, and the recording process. So good to have you back on the show, Brett. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I I, I kind of want to geek out right away. So um, let's do it. <laughs> I, I I just learned about is this this cool thing you know in the last several years called an anechoic chamber, and um, it's funny like like. Whenever, um, and I'm a total amateur engineer recording guy, you know, I, I'm a musician primarily. Yep. Um, and so, but I know a little bit, I've done some recording and, um, whenever I get advice to people, I, I try to remind them that, that they're not recording an instrument. They're recording the room. That Amen. The instrument is Amen. In. And so that, that's a really important thing to keep in mind that, although that doesn't necessarily apply with the anechoic chamber. So right. can you. Can you explain what that is and, and why they're so cool? Yeah, yeah. So anechoic chambers are just these kind of unearthly spaces. If you ever get a chance to go in one, even if you're you know not musical, not into acoustics, the experience is just kind of insane. Um, so they're incredibly, they were designed for research. They were designed for very um, exacting, high quality measurements of acoustic and actually uh, radio frequency energy as well. You see a lot of them in use for developing cell phones and huh. uh, you know mobile devices, wireless cards, things like that. That's interesting. That makes sense. It's so it's because it is so sensitive that I, I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. Yeah, That's actually great. some of the, some of the biggest um, ones in, in use today, um, the biggest one I believe still to this day is um, owned by the U S government and they can like test cargo planes in it. The thing is massive, wow, but uh, yeah, there's like pictures of a tank and a jet in it. And you're like, Holy, it's, it's you know, enormous. warehouse. What, what are they exactly? I mean, how are they designed? Yeah. So it's, it's a room that is designed with uh, very good acoustic isolation. So usually they build a building and then inside the building, they actually cut the foundation or pour a separate foundation inside that's completely disconnected from the outer walls. And then they build a separate building with high density building materials inside. And they usually, quote unquote, float it. A lot of people hear floating floor. Well, same concept. They actually put it on either giant spring isolators or like foam rubber isolators. So if a truck drives past and is shaking the ground, that vibration doesn't make its way to the interior. Wow. Then inside, they put, um, depending on the size, anywhere from hundreds to thousands of these huge foam wedges or fiberglass wedges that are 
sometimes a couple of meters deep and they absorb sound very effectively and at all frequencies. So you go in and the reason it's so sort of unearthly and strange is you say something or you play a sound or you play something through a speaker and no sound comes back to you. Whatever hits you directly, that's what you get. And when it hits the walls, it's gone. It's absorbed. It's dissipated. And it doesn't sound like it'd be that crazy, but even a fairly dead recording studio, there's still a floor. There's still some sort of ceiling. In an anechoic chamber, usually the floor is made out of wire mesh. And there are these absorbers below you as well. So there's no place for the sound to bounce off of. It's it's crazy. Um, and they're so quiet that uh, one of the most common sensations or complaints is if people spend quite a bit of time in there, especially by themselves, the loudest sound you hear is your own blood circulating. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that, that must it's, be so insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're like, uh, okay. I don't like this anymore. Like it's, it's very disconcerting, especially if you don't know what to expect. Um, and there's, there's an urban legend who knows if it's true or not of somebody who actually accidentally got locked in an anechoic chamber overnight. And, uh, there's there's now an emergency latch on most anechoic chambers that are built today uh because this person lost touch with reality and and had some um you know medium term mental health effects wow. of being stuck in this crazy space yeah. um where you scream as loud as you can no one's going to hear you you talk to yourself and you can barely hear your own voice you know it's just crazy well, and and it, I I can almost imagine you know it feeling you know so especially if it's dark, but um, yes, uh, you know, but if <laughs> but you know being in a space, it'd be so disconcerting because you feel so, so collapsed, especially if it's like I, I imagine being in that in that U.S. government one, you know, where it's giant and yet you feel like you're in a closet. That would just be so strange. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's. It really is crazy. The other thing that I noticed, I've been in a few, uh, I was in one in Japan and a couple in North America. And um, if you go in with a group or with a couple of people and you're talking like we are now, we're no big deal. We're conversing, you know, in a nice normal tone. You come out and your voice is sort of raw because you feel like you're being, you're yelling to be heard even a couple of feet away because we just don't have that little extra support from the desk and the floor and the walls and the chairs, everything that sound sound normally bounces off of. Well, you'd have to maybe hold your hands up in front of your face to hear a little bit more sound. and, And even then it would probably dissipate so quickly. Yeah, cup your ears or or people sort of get kind of what would normally be like uncomfortably close, you know, <laughs> like whisper close just yeah. to have a normal conversation. It's it's oh, crazy. So How many are there? I mean, are they ubiquitous? Are there the, um, some at universities? It must it must cost a lot to create them. Yeah, they're they're incredibly expensive. So they're not not quite as frequently found as one might hope. Um, I would say most major cities usually have either a private company or a university that has one. Um, there's probably a couple hundred in the United States. Um, but yeah, they, they often quote, you know, you're talking two, $3 million, even for one that's just the size once it's completed for like a person to sit in a chair by themselves. Um, so when you start talking about ones that you can fit cars in to test engine noise or, um, fit planes in to test jet engines or anything like that, it's tens of millions of dollars. And, and the, the, I guess one of the benefits of it, because it almost does take away all space. So, you know, if you don't need to test a jet engine, you know, the, the difference in, in the sound is going to be the same, whether you're, whether it's, you know, a hundred feet or 10 feet. Exactly. Know? Yeah. Unless, unless that's really a part of the research being done. Cause there's, there's some acoustic research where they're, you know, measuring spread over space or something, but yeah, if you're measuring headphones, let's say, or a phone, you expect that device to probably be within five, six feet at the very most of sort of where you're interested. Um, you know, so you can, 
put it in the center. And then as long as you have that sort of five or six feet of range, you're pretty well covered. Um, but what gets really wild is when you're measuring. So they actually take other acoustic treatment into these crazy acoustic spaces to test it. It's, like it's some, so meta. It's yeah. It's some weird inception thing going on, but, you know, so, so Joe builds his perfect uh, acoustic diffuser, which is supposed to scatter sound in a very precise way. They'll take this two foot by two foot panel into a giant, uh, and a Coke chamber, they'll shoot sound at it and then they'll measure, okay, how is it at two feet? How is it at four feet? How is it at 10 feet? How is it ah. at 50 feet? Um, so they can map it all out precisely. So then all of a sudden, oh man, we need, you know, we need 25, 30, 40 feet in every direction or at least in two directions. So it gets, yeah, it's, if you ever get a chance, there's, there's a couple of great articles, um, on when Apple opened their new headquarters, I want to say they have like eight or nine anechoic wow. chambers that they use for different device testing, and they have some incredible pictures. I mean, it looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. It's they're oh. just incredible. That'd be a good escape room type of <laughs> <laughs> right. In- escape before you lose your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know it is interesting. Like like the way our brain has evolved. You know, we we learn how we have learned how to hear in a very specific way. You know, right. so that our brain's able to cancel certain things, able to you know focus on other things, and and uh, you know, it's kind of you know adds to another conversation of, of, you know, the, how our modern society is kind of messing with that, our hearing that way. Um, but it is, a, you know, it, interesting when you, when you put yourself in an environment that way, how it just messes up all of evolution. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's really, it's fascinating. I, I was so bummed last year. I, I had to skip one of my favorite in-class demonstrations um, because of COVID and trying to keep everyone, you know, separated and whatnot. But I, I generally have, uh, I bring in like a big brick of, um, cheap modeling clay or something like that, that can mold a little bit and has a little tackiness to it. And I have everyone fill up the little indentation in their ear, not the actual canal, mm-hmm. just that little indentation called the concha. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, crazy how much it affects you. And I have them do it at the beginning of class. And by the end of 45 minutes, no one's paying attention to it anymore because our brain can respond so quickly to these new, these new environments or these new conditions that the brain adapts over 20, 30 minutes to something like that. Then they take it out and they go right back to being like, okay, what just happened? (laughs) Uh, you know, at the end of class (laughs) and, and it's, it's incredible, you know, the resiliency, but also how finely tuned we are to these tiny little, you know, contours of our outer ear that you'd think, oh, that's no big deal. You know, I'll, I'll pierce it. Who knows? That might actually change the way you hear for a few days until your body um, sort of rebuilds its mapping of how sound enters your ear. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. It's amazing. It's just our, our, uh, all of our senses, you know, when you have these researchers that go into a cave or something and want to spend a week in there and they almost go crazy just because of the difference in light. They don't know when darkness actually is happening. Their bodies, their circadian rhythms get off. Yes. That's a visual thing. And, and also the sound in there is so different and you're so isolated. You don't have any feedback. It's, you know, like you say, I'm sure that that myth has some truth to it. You can really go crazy. Well, yeah, and you're you're totally right about light and and having that feedback from some external um, visual sense as well. Yeah. Uh, there's there are documents that basically show that various government agencies um, looked into sensory deprivation as a method of interrogation, and it yeah. was sound and light. Those were the two, those were the two easiest things to do. You know, you put somebody in a dark room and you put them in a room where they can't hear anything else. Yeah. Yeah, So crazy. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, um, let, yeah, I want to kind of, you know, it's because of great technology, like Anacoke chambers and stuff. (laughs) Um, it's interesting how, uh, the audio, um, equipment industry is changing. Um, and, and, you know, it, it seems to be getting better and better. Um, you know, we're, we're, you know, ch- cheaper devices seem to work more. Consistently. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I'm curious, like, um, 
you know, if you're, if you're giving advice to somebody who's maybe just getting started or wants to have like a bedroom, um, you know, little production space or, or whatever, um, you know, are you, um, how much are you focusing on, on technique versus, versus gear and, and wow, yeah, and space and all that. <laughs> That's yeah. That is a great question. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I worked for quite a while with a guy who's a very prolific engineer producer who recorded some absolutely phenomenal, um, you know, you've, you've heard him on the radio before type tunes. Uh, and he, he was, uh, a fixture at a studio in Nashville. He was in LA for a while, ended up in Nashville and, uh, their motto was if it doesn't rock, it sucks. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was sort of the in your face rock and roll kind of utterance of this idea. But the idea is 100% true. If you have the best equipment in the world in the best room in the world, and maybe you even hire the best engineer or you're a phenomenal engineer, you have the best technique with placing microphones and everything. If the song isn't good, it kind of doesn't matter. It's, you know, that's, that's something that I think, unfortunately, um, there is so much gear out, which is awesome. And you're totally right. It's gotten better and better and better very consistently, especially over, let's say the last 10 years. Um, but it's easy to go online and you could spend 10 hours reading about which, microphone cable to buy because there are people who are willing to spend 10 hours writing blog posts and having discussion <laughs> board, you know, arguments and whatever. Gotta but love it, gear sluts, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but you know, like at the end of the day, that's not the thing that's going to make or break it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, so when I'm talking to people, working with people who are trying to put together a home studio or a good workable setup, I say, you know, okay, you're, you're in charge of the talent. Like that's, you know, you, you have to make that commitment. You know, you, you do that stuff. I mean, that's not a part of my process, but when it comes to gear and room, you cannot escape the room unless you magically have one of these anechoic chambers on hand. It's right. Whatever you do is always going to have some characteristic of that room. So piling a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear into, you know, a, a $200 sheetrock and studs with no insulation and linoleum floor office is not going to do you much good. So I really try to, to help people understand that the room can make uh, a, an incredible impact. And from the room, if, if the room is perhaps the most important thing, uh, or maybe 50, 50 with the microphone, because a good microphone placed well with the right pattern can help you know, flatter the room a little bit more, but every step further you get from the microphone or from the source itself, the less important it becomes. Um, it's people will spend all this money on some fancy converter interface and that's cool. Awesome. I'm glad you're doing that. Like quality is important at every stage, but if you're plugging a $50 off-brand microphone, from eBay into a $500 or $5,000 converter. Right. Is that really, have you prioritized <laughs> effectively? <laughs> I guess that's, that's the question. No, yeah. I, that, that's interesting. Cause yeah, you'll see that or you'll see somebody buy a, a kind of a high end class A me, uh, preamp or something. Yeah. You know, and then they'll, they'll stick a, you know, a, a pile microphone from China, you know, <laughs> exactly. I, I was on a, a zoom call yesterday with a, a bunch of audio engineers from all over the place. And, uh, one guy from, uh, from South America was giving this poor German guy the hardest time because he was using a Chinese microphone on his zoom setup. And he said, what's the world coming to a Germans using a Chinese microphone. <laughs> <laughs> he just couldn't get over it, you know? Uh, but you know, it, it's, there's, the right mic for the right job is, is right. important too. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, talk of like, well, what's the, if you could only buy one mic, well, there is no such one mic. Okay. What are you going to do with it? Okay. Now we can limit it down. Okay. Now it's going to do better at this than this. You know, it, it's like a paintbrush. <laughs> you, you'd be hard pressed to find a painter that only had one brush and could do everything they wanted to do with that. They could do a lot more than I could cause I'm horrible at painting, but, um, you know, they're going to have their tools of their trade. And I, I really think microphones are analogous to 
to um, paintbrushes. I think that's a, a very close analogy. Yeah. It's different sculpting, different shape, different uh, contour, different level of detail. Absolutely. That's interesting. That's- if somebody was sort of an amateur, and I know you've actually, um, you know, Mike's helped me with a little setup and you've come over to my house and given me some uh, rundown of certain things that I need for my space and, you know, uh, yeah. creating a little home studio. So if, if somebody's just starting out, uh, you know, what, what might some basic equipment be? What are a few things they might need? You know, certainly an audio interface might not be something everybody use, is used to, and especially with some of the new USB mics that are out there are fairly good. Um, and yeah. not that you have to promote any certain one, but maybe some that you've worked with or a, a basic setup that people could use. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. The audio interface, it's kind of this like, I feel like it's the the hidden thing in this whole setup that mm-hmm. uh, that especially for people who are just entering this world of podcasting or recording themselves or, or even doing voiceover from home, mm-hmm. uh, it's like this. I don't get it. What does this thing do? Well, microphones have developed over well over a hundred years now, and they've sort of developed to work with a specific set of cables and electrical conditions. Um, and so the audio interface is just the link that says, okay, I can take this pretty well-established set of microphones and I could take one from manufacturer A, B, or C. They're all going to work generally the same. I can plug that in and then it converts that signal, which is still analog at this point, to digital packages it nicely and sends it via usually some sort of USB these days to the computer. So it's the middleman and the whole procedure. And then it'll do the same in reverse. So you've got software that you're creating music on. Let's say you're playing virtual synthesizers or you're looping drums or something like that. Then that goes digital via USB to that audio interface, which converts it back to analog and gets it to the right signal level and signal conditions that then it can go out to headphones or speakers. So it's, it's kind of the hub of the modern small studio. Um, besides that, it's kind of the periphery, right? If you've got a computer and you've got an audio interface, then it comes down to a lot of uh, kind of artistic choice or, or suiting your needs. Um, well, and it, it used to be it used to be a, a, a big deal, like what kind of audio interface you'd get, because there was such a difference between yes. the quality. And that's really, if anything, has changed. I think in the last ten years, more than anything, it's been how audio f- interfaces have become. Just like you just, it's plug and play. You don't have to worry about it almost no matter where you get it, as yeah. long as it's a reputable, uh, you know. Uh, place you know as long as 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 the the company that made it you can recognize (laughs) yeah it it's it's actually really similar to what's happened with flat panel well we just think of them as computer monitors and tvs but flat panel displays there are not that many companies that make the actual raw components people package them differently they put different processing chips in them whatever same thing's kind of true with audio interfaces the real um core, the brain of the operation, there's like three or four companies that make those chips. So people are packaging slightly different electronics or features or just overall aesthetic style to the thing around it. But yeah, I mean, something I'm on like a $200 audio interface right now talking to you. It's fine. You know, it's not anything fancy, but it works really well. And I guarantee if I opened it up and then I went back to the studio and opened up my $2,000 interface, I might see the same chip at the, the center of the whole thing. Right. You know, um, the, the number of chips and the, you know, sort of surrounding electronics would likely be very different. But at the core, the part that's doing the vast majority of the work is pretty much the same in most most boxes these days it's kind of crazy well so how is that um the the other stuff that's surrounding it uh, affecting the sound so much and also now that you can have these usb mics that go directly into the computer and bypass that that hub um yeah. you know how is that affecting the sound and you know certainly it's affecting the cost but how is that yeah. affecting the quality well, so the the surrounding electronics do a lot to condition the signal in the analog world before it gets converted to digital. Um, and that's still that's still kind of 
I mean, it's obviously science, it's electrical engineering. I, I'm not, not sort of uh, denigrating any of those, those great <laughs> professions, but there's still an art to the design of the analog components more so. It's a lot less cut and dry. <laughs> Digital, you put in a signal, you're looking for the same signal out, but represented with ones and zeros. On the analog side, people um, choose components or choose uh, circuit architecture that tends to flavor the sound a little more. It's kind of got a little spice to it, or it's very neutral, or um, you know, maybe it's got more or less high end or low end, um, and so that can have a pretty big, uh, a pretty big effect. But the thing is, if you're kind of using a very standard, um, you're operating under standard conditions, it matters less and less. Uh, where you tend to hear these things is way, way at the top of the range when you have things really cranked up, you know, you've got a really soft source or you're trying to capture detail like a classical piano that's playing pianissimo and has, you know, very, very precise details and articulations. Okay, then maybe the $200 box I have now isn't going to quite hold up because of the front end analog stuff. But if I'm just talking into it, I bet if we did a blind test, we probably couldn't hear much of a difference. And and that applies all because it's the same electronics essentially. You're just moving the interface into the microphone. You know, yeah. if you're using a USB microphone, it's essentially the same thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's all in one package. And the big trade-off is um, with like this audio interface I've got sitting on my desk here, I could go to, go across the room to my cabinet. I could grab a different microphone, plug that in, no problem. With a USB mic, um, you're sort of, you're confined to what's in that one package, which, you know, for video conferencing, for, for a lot of sort of work from home stuff, it works really well. And the concept actually came from professional audio. There's a, a great German company called Neumann um, that's been making some of the world's best mics for basically since after World War II, um, actually during World War II. But um, they, uh, they experimented with putting the digital uh, conversion right into the microphone for really high-end classical productions. Neumann did that. I had yes. no idea. Yeah. It was called the solution D and they were about $15,000 a piece when they came out. Um, <laughs> and they were insanely. Yeah. And that was early two thousands. I think uh -oh. the first time I used one was 2003 or 2004. Um, and it was fun cause we used them and then we packed them off and sent them to New Zealand to be used for Lord of the Rings. Oh, uh, cool. but, <laughs> um, but yeah, there were these incredible things and what they've done is just changed the output. Now it goes to USB rather than, you know, obviously there's, there's been a lot of development and manufacturing that makes it possible to do these things that just, you know, 20 years ago, there was no way, no way you could make it affordable. Well, and I think it, it, again, you mentioned it before, it comes down to the right tool for the right job. Like, like for me, you know, the biggest benefit of having, you know, a, a, an interface per se is that I have, you know, multiple outputs and so right. if I, or inputs. So if I, if I, if my band comes over and play, I can record them all at the same time where with a USB that becomes a lot more problematic. Right, right. And, and a lot of times it's getting better, but there was a long time where if you plugged in one USB mic and then you tried to plug in another one, like the world would implode, you know, your, your, your computer <laughs> your was like, I don't, go crazy. yeah, I don't know what to do with this. I can only choose one, you know, it was, it was some weird situation and that's gotten better too. But yeah, it's nice to be able to say, Hey, I'm going to record guitar and vocals. So I need three mics. Yeah. Cool done, you know, but if, if you're doing video conferencing and actually a lot of my colleagues at the university, they got a, a solid USB mic, you know, something from blue or audio technica has a number of really good options now. And that's what they did remote, uh, lessons, you know, instrumental and voice lessons on for the last year almost. Yeah. Um, kind of moving, um, into uh kind of because I, I like to i want to get into some um a little bit more piano centric stuff but before that i want to maybe as a as a as a segue talk about the difference between recording in a studio versus recording live um yeah and i don't yeah. mean live you know like a you know playing playing in a studio but a, a live performance let's say it that way at a as hall or at a venue know. or something yeah yeah, yeah or, or yeah with an audience yeah. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. difference between those kind of settings and as an engineer, how do you approach that? Oh man, it's, it's wild. I love doing live stuff. Like that's, uh, that's actually what I was doing 
uh, last night and Sunday and Friday. Uh, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of my life is, and now we're actually having audiences again, which is really nice, but, uh, it's, it's, uh, a crazy game of like, I, I tell people I'm professionally paranoid because when I pr- plan for a gig, I spend more time thinking about what's going to go wrong mm-hmm. than I do, you know, sometimes about what I'm actually focused, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm recording piano. Okay, I got that. That part's easy. I've done that before. What's going to go wrong at this new venue I've never been to mm-hmm. um, and, and figuring out ways around these potential problems. And the studio is, it's stable. You know, a good studio, that's what it's there for. You should be able to walk in, plug something in, fire up Pro Tools or whatever DAW and hit record. And at no point should there be a problem. You know, like it's it's been there. It's built into the room. It's ready to go. Um, Whereas uh, like Sunday, I was I was uh, helping with a live stream for the American Penis Association. Uh, So there was an audience and there were some people speaking throughout the program. And I was set up in a balcony next to the video control station, and uh, I had my mics on the piano, sounded lovely. Uh, I took a split of the mic at the podium, and then they said, oh, well, there's also going to be a wireless mic because there's going to be a couple of special presentations. Okay, oh. cool. Oh, you know, of course, little did I know that the two places for me to tap into the wireless mic system that was amplifying for the audience in-house was... 150 feet away and 250 feet away. <laughs> so, oh, run back and forth. Yeah, you know, so it was like, okay, I'm really glad I brought 150 feet. I, I brought three extra 50 foot cables, ended up using all three of them just for wow. this, this tapping a wireless mic. And, and that's to me, you know, that's the sort of stuff. Uh, it's the you, Boy Scout rule. You exactly. Know? <laughs> you become a Boy Scout, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. wow. Man, I may not need it, but I probably will at some point. <laughs> and, and it's crazy because I started doing that stuff in New York. So you have this really crazy dichotomy where it's if you can't carry it upstairs in one trip, right. whatever you leave downstairs is going to be gone when you get back. Yeah. yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, I need yeah. all this extra stuff. So you start really like okay, what can I do? You find these crazy solutions. I have like a, a rolling suitcase that turns into a backpack. And I, I'm sure I look like some off-brand cosplay stormtrooper <laughs> or something, you know, with a mic stand sticking out one side and whatever. But man, I could take it on the subway. Like I was good. So, <laughs> I, I saw a great video. It was an Adam Neely video where mm-hmm. he's doing a live gig and, and he's got his bass and his amp and the whole thing. And he's got a hand truck, you know, wrapped in, in plastic because you know it's going to rain in new york and just <laughs> you know taking it you know rolling it to the gig and it, it's you know it's all there it, it it ain't pretty but it gets the job done yeah exactly exactly you gotta wheel wheels are glorious loading docks are glorious <laughs> having a truck is glorious having a union crew to help unload is the best oh you yeah. know it's just it, it's crazy these little things you start to appreciate yeah. I, I would wonder, you know, how much does the audience affect your recording? Because when you're going to a live situation or a hall, you're going to set up everything when nobody's there. And, and I'm yes. sure the audience coming is going to affect the sound a lot. Yeah. It, in multiple ways. You're right. The, the acoustics, and this is something that has changed a lot in the acoustics realm. Uh, mm-hmm. In the last ah 15 years, I'd say 10 years, maybe um, there's been a real focus on designing seats for concert halls and people will go crazy with how they design the seats because they try to make it. So if a seat is occupied with an average, you know, they look up the CDC's average mass and weight uh, or in height and all this good stuff. And okay. If an average person sits in this hall, it'll do this acoustically. Now, if we take the person out, we want to design the bottom of the chair and the back of the chair. So when it's not covered, it does the same thing acoustically, which is crazy. Wow. So many great halls weren't built in the last 10, 20 years, right? Right. Most good halls were built a long time ago, so they don't have this. And yeah, um, you'll see people... 
doing all kinds of crazy stuff when they have to like record a concert, but then they might have to record a few spots after the fact, uh, with no audience, you know, they'll, they'll have every crew member come sit down just to try to help out, which usually (laughs) is not nearly enough. Um, you'll see people trucking in acoustic treatment that they just sort of throw in chairs to try to emulate the sound. Um, but then there's the other side. A lot of times you're so focused on, Oh, we've got this beautiful space. We want to capture the nice sound of this concert hall and then um everyone shows up and somebody's futzing with a candy wrapper (laughs) somebody's going through their purse and like three people are having a conversation at the back and all of a sudden you've got that aspect too so you're you're dealing with the acoustic difference plus all of a sudden there's just way more noise that you're trying to get rid of or reduce coming Mm -hmm. from behind where the main focus is a lot less controlled what what uh, uh about um uh, the the trade-off because I mean obviously all these things are trade-offs and, and this whole conversation is about trade-offs you know yeah. trying to figure out what you know the best solution um you know because I, I the, the the aspect of going back to to record something um you know what is the trade-off today you know um well let me let me back up we had Mark Ainley a couple times and and you know we talk about like old recordings and we yeah. talked about the you know um how they're not pristine and perfect in a lot of ways. Um, but now today it's like you expect that to come, for, especially from a top artist. Yeah. So what's the trade-off between having the excitement, the, the, the feel of a live performance versus, you know, you know, going back to fix a few notes here and there. I, I love, I love live performance recordings. I, I think, and and I do a lot of jazz and classical, and jazz is a no-brainer, right? Because there's such an interplay that happens. And you will, because it's never the same twice in a row, the solos are different, the the interplay is different between players, you know, man, the drummer and the bass player did this really great lock-in thing under the trumpet solo, and that might never happen again. So <laughs> that one's easy. But for classical, I think there's a sense of urgency that's there when it's live, because you don't get the luxury, I think, as a performer. And granted, I haven't been a performer for for quite a few years now. But um, Elias maybe can can tell me if this is crazy or not. But my own sort of personal theory is um, you don't have the luxury of focusing on, oh man, I just missed a note, because your brain is constantly on top of what's happening now and what's coming next. Whereas when you're in that more sort of um, clinical studio setting, and, and not studio per se, but when you have the luxury of going back and recording the same part 16 times, um, you don't, you don't, push yourself on to part B, even if part A, you know, got a little ragged at times. And I think the flow gets interrupted so much more that way. Um, even my, my favorite live recordings that had sessions after or before to, to hit certain spots that were going to potentially be a problem. So much of it still comes from that live performance. You know, the energy is just, it's different. Yeah, it's, it's, I, even in a recording space too. I I always uh, think about the difference between a live a live performance and a recording performance, where you're you know just playing for the microphone, and um, the nerves are very different. You know, in a in a live performance, usually you're very nervous at the beginning, or at least I am. And as you start to play, and as you start to get into it, you feel a little bit more relaxed and a little better. And as you get towards the end. You know, the, the closer you get towards the end, the more relaxed you feel in a way right. because it's almost over and, and uh, sort of the elation after is great. Uh, even if you messed up, it's just, oh, thank God that's over. Um, <laughs> but with the recording, it's almost the opposite. I, I remember, I mean, because Brett actually was the, the recording engineer for two of my albums. And, uh, and at the beginning of them, when I first go in to record, it's super relaxed. I'm like, oh, I've played this stuff so many times. In performances, I know how it goes, especially the beginnings are usually pretty straightforward. And as soon as I start playing, then, you know, you get 10 seconds in, you're like, wow, I better not mess up now because I've already started and it's going well. And by the time you're a minute in, oh, my God, I'm so <laughs> nervous about missing. And then you start you know, clamp, you know, uh, cramping up, I guess, and, and uh, the energy sort of gone and becomes sterile. So it's, you, it's much more difficult. You, you end up in an yeah. anaconic chamber. Yeah. yeah. 
just it's, alone it's with your weird, thoughts. Right? Yeah, it's such a weird <laughs> thought process. And you try to get out of that and try to say, well, just play through it, you know, do one full take and and then you can come back and spot check. Um, actually, I've, I've also heard in some live recordings that are done for, for radio, let's say, uh, I think for the um, Canadian, there's a national radio broadcast once. And, and I remember uh, seeing a performance and then they were able able to do a spot check or something after or a little bit of a recording afterwards and, yeah. and plug that in. So uh, if you yeah, have and- the luxury of doing that, I guess it's okay, but. Yeah, that's a, that's a really common um, common setup, especially for large orchestra where it's mm-hmm. you know tens of thousands of dollars an hour just for the musicians to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll do <clears throat> like let's say it's a, a sort of large large town orchestra where they might do um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening performances, Sunday matinee. Mm-hmm. They'll record dress rehearsal Wednesday. Um, and it depends sometimes on what's in the orchestra's contract. Then they'll record Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they'll record Sunday. Everyone will take a dinner break. And during that dinner break, the conductor, the producer, the engineer, everyone sits back and they sort of have been marking their scores and circling parts. Oh, we didn't get this yet. We didn't get this yet. The orchestra will come back for maybe an hour or two after dinner and they'll say, okay, we need to hit bar 34 in the first movement. We need to hit the B section of uh, the fourth movement. And it would be great if we could get the uh, first five notes of the clarinet solo. And they'll just hit those spots. Yeah. Wow. And then knock it out and then you have everything you need. Exactly. So you take, you know, 95% of it is that live stuff, but then it's just that, oh man, it just never quite locked in here. So we'll just get a few bars on either side and we'll be able to drop it in. Yeah, It's so amazing to me from a classic, from a, uh, you know, having played to many click tracks, being able to do that in a classical setting is pretty wild to to think about. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a standard part of the classical producers toolkit is, uh, colored pencils for marking scores and highlighters and all that good stuff. But then, uh, usually a, a tuner and a metronome. So if, you know, if on Thursday night, it was a little faster than it was the other nights, we need to know that maybe we can't use that material to edit back and forth. We're going to have to pick one or the other. And then when we do get to Sunday evening, okay, listen, three out of the four nights, it started right about, you know, 136. So that's where we should start now. That'll give us the best chance. Wow. And I'm sure mixing from those different uh, days, I mean, this even the same hall, the same musicians, the same music and everything, the audience is going to be different. The humidity is going to be different uh, yeah. in the hall. It's it's just going to alter the sound. Somebody's going to have a little more energy, the clarinetist one day and, and the, the bassist another day. And and the balance is going to be different. So mixing those different takes is, is uh, an art in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Actually my, my wife, who's also an engineer was working on something last night and I came home, I had a radio broadcast and I came home and I was sort of zonked and, and she was, she looked like she'd had a rough one too. And she said, I've been working on this one stupid edit all day <laughs> and, and you know, she uh, working on a lot, but she, that's where she ended up. And she said, can I play this for you? And she sat down and she played it. And, um, incredible, um, contemporary music ensemble, very, very good group. Um, but there was just one pizzicato that was different in every single take. Oh. It was just, you know, and, and that's right where they needed, you know, there was a, a note that was under the pits that kind of wavered in pitch. And it was like, what are we going to find? And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. That is a rough one. Like it's just, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah. So you just, you, you get creative. And, um, one of the big things that's available now in so many software platforms for editing is you can even take just a, a specific clip and you can maybe EQ it and change level just to try to help match, you know, it's never going to be perfect, but maybe it gets close enough that it sort of isn't noticeable to the mm-hmm. average listener and, and you can sort of sneak it in there for a second. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before too, uh, before we got on a project that you're working on. And I wonder now that we're talking about EQing and getting all these levels and, and putting so many pieces of the puzzle together. Uh, if you could talk to us about that and what are, what are the challenges? I think it was for, for a band. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a great, great artist, uh, up in Montreal, Beth McKenna. Um, she's a, 
fantastic composer. She's done a lot of combo tunes and a lot of big band tunes. And we knew each other up in Montreal. And then uh, I've worked on a couple of her big band albums since I've been back in the US. And she uh, she decided to kind of go back to her roots. And so this has been in the works. Obviously, COVID threw a wrench in this like everything else. Uh, but she's been putting together a combo album. And um, I'm trying to think. I guess it's a quintet and killer musicians, great players, fun guys. Uh, and so they tracked up in Montreal and I got the tracks and I was, I do a lot of straight ahead jazz these days, especially I seem to do, you know, a lot of just kind of standard con combo tunes, very normal, traditional instrumentation. And so in my mind, that's just kind of where my brain went. And so I get these tracks and it was wild it's awesome it's awesome. uh you know these crazy guitar effects and uh oh there's piano but also there's organ and there's Whoa. keys and there's a Wurlitzer and there's uh roads and there's you know like i'm like okay i was expecting like 25 tracks and i've got like 50 okay cool <laughs> so uh yeah then then you really start to go in and and it's fun for me as a mixing engineer at that point because the musicians have created an arrangement, but I can sort of help guide. I'm like the the tour guide. I'm the docent at a museum. There's this incredible landscape that the musicians have built and recorded, and I kind of help guide the listener through it. You know, oh, hey, have you paid attention to the roads part? That's kind of cool. And I push right. that up a little and get people into that. And then, oh, but there's this other, th you know, and I sort of, um, I, I like to think of it as uh, benevolent manipulation. I sort of <laughs> help, help, help tell the listener, Oh, have you, have you considered listening to this part? Uh, right. sneak it up a little or highlight it or help it come out or move to the center or whatever it needs to happen. And that's when you really start digging into really deep, heavy EQ, you know, where you're really sculpting sounds to fit in this very dense landscape. Well, talk about that for a second, because I think people don't get, um, understand, especially with a heavy layered, um, you know, piece where, where there's just lots of, um, you know, lots of music, lots of sound in kind of, um, in our, our main hearing, uh, you know, part, part of our, our, our hearing spectrum, um, talk about the, the kind of the challenges and the, and the, the, the choices that you have to make to, to make those work. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, you, you hit on something that, that sort of sparked a, a common thought that I have is I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much is crammed into a lot of especially popular music. Um, you know, they're like, oh, there was a voice and I, there was like a bass and I heard some drums and I'm pretty sure there was a keyboard in there. Yeah. And then you look at what's actually going on and there is 50 keyboards and there is right. three drum machines and then there's samples and there's 15 layers of vocals plus there's 25 background vocals. And it's this massive thing to get the sound that we have sort of evolved and become used to, to the point that we just say, Oh, it's just these few it's things. Simple, yeah. And it's so uh, over, it's so produced. I mean, you're yeah. almost an artist as an engineer or as a producer, but you're, you're one of the artists in a way, or maybe the right. overarching artist. Well, it's, it's interesting. That's something else interesting because we started to see the producer as the artist more. Uh -huh. And, and that's a fairly recent change. People yeah. like, um, DJ Khaled and, um, chain smokers and people who aren't, they're not singing. They're not playing a guitar. They're not a band. You look at some of these albums, they don't sing on any track. They don't, uh, rap on any track. They're not, you know, they're not sort of the artist in a traditional sense, but they composed all that. They put those parts together. They wrote the lyrics and then they went out and found a singer to sort of be at the front of the stage, uh, which is really interesting. So it, it is kind of that way. And I don't work on a lot of that heavy, thick, dense pop stuff, but it is super fun with a project like uh, Beth's new album where, uh, yeah, you have these layers and you have to say, okay, you know, there's bass, there's a low guitar part, and there's an organ pad part that's playing fairly low notes. I can't have all of this happening at once, right? It's, right? There's there's too much. You're sort of cramming too much into too small a space. So at some point you have to make the decision, okay, this is the most important thing. And um, 
the others might just have to to tone it down a little. I have to turn them down or I have to EQ them in a way where they're not going to detract from what really should be the main focus. Uh, and that changes a lot over a song. You know, people think, oh, it's just the vocalist the whole time yeah. in some yeah. songs, but not always. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and if you were to, it, you know, especially on modern, like kind of pop rock tracks, um, this is the case, but I imagine it, it's in a smaller, lesser degree. It's the same on, on a project like this. If you were to listen or if one was to listen to those individual tracks, they might feel thin or they might feel not like they don't sound quite good, but yeah. it's when you put them all together that you go, okay, I see the vision of, of why it had to be that way. Yeah. It, it kind of, it kind of cracks me up. I think vocals are actually the one that sticks out most to me. Yeah. Um, when you listen to a soloed up vocal and this happens, it seems to happen every couple of years, you know, some disgruntled intern at a studio steals the hard drive and releases the, the soloed vocal <laughs> of some pop star. Right. And, and, uh, everyone's like, Oh, it's out of tune and whatever. And that's not what I'm listening to. Cause I already know that they're going to tune it up and they're going to do right. whatever. I'm like, I'm like, Oh man, that sounds really bright or that, that sounds kind of thin, you know, exactly. and, but it works. It, it's, you know, it's, it's like looking at one piece of a puzzle and criticizing the whole work. You know, it's uh -huh. just, it, it has to be seen in the context of everything going on. Cause you're totally right. You listen to maybe the bass track sounds really aggressive and grungy and you think, God, that's awful. And then you hear it with the whole tune and you go, Oh, that it fits just, in exactly where it needs fits to. It's in, yeah. It's almost. And, and oh, go ahead. Go, I was gonna say, and it's a, it, it's, it seems to be such a psychoacoustic thing. Like it, it's, it's like, yeah. it's it, our, our again, it goes back to our brains. Like, how do we perceive sound? Yeah, yeah. I think with in the classical world, at least when um, when people used to talk about hearing high fits up close, you know, or really great violinists, they almost sounded grainy or or too harsh, uh, but that needed to really carry in a, in a large space. And so if you were sitting 20 or a hundred feet away, it sounded great, but almost too close. And, and it's, wow, that's, that's really a, an edgy sound. Yeah. Well, I, I think the same is true of piano too. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, when I'm, when I'm lucky enough to record, uh, an amazing player like you, Elias, or, or some of the other people <laughs> I've worked people with. with much bigger <laughs> names that you've recorded. Well, doesn't matter. I, I, you know, you, you guys are all these, these phenomenal players and I have to move the mics further back uh -huh. for you because you play with an intensity and, and you sort of dig in and elicit the sound to speak more than a younger player mm -hmm. who's a bit more timid and hasn't sort of realized their uh, ability to fill a concert hall. Right. You know, I think that's the big difference. You get people who are used to playing for 500 to 2000 people for a concert in a big hall they play very different than somebody who plays in their, their living room for fun. Right. For family, yeah. right. That just made me think of, of Frederick true. Uh, oh. We had him on and, and how he uh, talked about learning and he, they, they put, you know, I'm you imagine these iron uh, weight on his wrist oh, yeah, for him. To oh, practice. wow. Yeah. Wow. His, his teacher did one thing. I'm like, Oh my God, that's awful. But luckily he, he, was, <laughs> he came out of it, you know, yeah, I guess it worked. It worked for him. But wow. It was hilarious. He said something like, I had really, you know, I, I had great stamina, but you know, my tone was terrible. Yeah, yeah. I I used to know I, I won't mention any uh any affiliations, but I knew a jazz trumpet player in Arizona who um who said he'd work on his chops. He traveled a lot um, and traveled a lot for non-musical work. So he would, he would work on his chops, keep himself in shape by um, tucking like a button or something on a string behind his lips. And then he'd just pull on it. Like while he was on the plane <laughs> wow. and then he'd just keep his face tight. And I'm oh. like, the dude can scream, but that can't be good. Like that. Yeah, there's man. no way that should happen. Like, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Crazy, oh, right? Yeah. Sacrifice for art, baby. Sacrifice yeah. for art. <laughs> doing, doing whatever you got to do. I guess it's like those. Finger, I don't know if you ever saw those, but the, um, the grips. You know, you can buy them. In oh different yeah. Strengths. You know, and I, I got a set of those once. The, the light, medium, and and hard. And I think when I was in college. And uh, I, I wouldn't recommend those to people. But <laughs> kind of, if you use them lightly and they're, you know, you're not going to 
injure yourself or get repetitive stress syndrome or disorder, you'll, you'll be okay. But <laughs> yeah, you know, there are better ways. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. I, I, I have such a respect for, you know, there's such a delicate musculature that musicians develop for their instrument, for their playing style, for their genre. You know, it's just, uh, it's, I, I think every time I hear about a, a football player who has an injury or, or something professional athlete and they, they have this incredible, you know, team of, of yeah. uh, sports medicine specialists and occupational therapists and, and people who help them, you know, regain their abilities. And like the, the exact same is true of musicians. It's, <clears throat> it's a delicate, precise set of movements that have to be done very consistently. And, and every bit is deserving of that kind of attention to make sure that everyone's in good shape and operating efficiently. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a performer first and foremost. And, you know, before you got into, I mean, now you have a doctorate in, in, in recording engineering and you have <laughs> tons of experience, but you know, that aspect of it too. And, and the training yeah. that it takes to, to get to that level, you know, professional level. So. Yeah. I, I, when I was playing more, um, I took Alexander lessons, Alexander mm -hmm. technique and, uh, and it was, it did a lot for me. I, I had a lot of tension, um, especially when I try to play drum set fast, I mm. would tense up because your body naturally thinks fast must be hard, hard must be rigid. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's, it's sort of a natural response and working with, uh, working with that instructor for like a semester realizing like, I don't need to be, you know, kind of rock solid, hardened in every regard, trying to play fast. That's making my whole life more difficult. Yeah. And it was like a, a total light bulb moment for me that, you know, sometimes our body, uh, if we're not very consciously manipulating our body, our body works against us and, and that yeah. can change your technique. Yeah. Yeah. Percussion is, uh, it's so easy to go down the wrong, the wrong path there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, piano too. I mean, yeah. carpal tunnel is such a, a, such a huge thing for, yeah. for a lot of people who have these repetitive hand motions. It's very, yeah, tough. And we don't, we don't talk about the physical, like you said, we don't have the team of, uh, doctors behind us, like a sports person, but also the psychological stuff, you know, when, when you're again with a team and you've got the, the, uh, sports psycholo uh, psychologists and all that, we had Ingela Onsted on a long time ago talking about yeah. how it's almost taboo in music at least in classical music, but I think in other genres too, if you show that uh, you have these weaknesses and you're, you're not in top form all the time. Um, yeah. You're not, you're not seen as a real, as a real artist. So. Yeah. I, I always thought it was, um, it was kind of crazy. Uh, I feel like when I was still playing, it was sort of the beginning of people talking more about taking beta blockers mm -hmm. uh, for performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you'd get a, a room full of 10 musicians and I was sort of transitioning more towards my role as an engineer. And so I would talk to people more one-on-one -on -one and I, I'd sort of, you know, as I developed relationships, I would find out that, that, you know, maybe these 10 people that I worked with regularly that, you know, six of them were on beta blockers, but if I, all 10 of them were in the room and I said, Oh, does anyone take beta blockers? Or, you know, I found this, this bottle, uh, whose is it? You know, somebody dropped this. No one, <laughs> no, no one would say anything. Yeah. No one would yeah. volunteer. And, and I really hope, um, I feel like at the university as much as the last 18 months, two years has been awful. Um, I hope one of the few silver linings is I feel like um, it pushed things in the music world to a tipping point where I really hope that mental health and physical wellness mm -hmm. can be discussed more. I think that's yeah. critical for every aspect of the industry. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things I try to emphasize with my students is, um, you know, we're, you know, it's kind of trite, but I, I try to try to keep it light. You know, we, we don't work at piano. We play the piano. Yeah. You know, we need to remember that it, it should be fun. At the end of the day, it should be something enjoyable and something meaningful. And, um, you know, if it's not, um, if, if things are getting in the way of that, we need to maybe not reassess our, our, our total path, but reassess how we're perceiving, you know, the things that we're doing that, that cause us to not feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's about learning good habits too. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's an interesting position. Um, once you're in grad school, 
there's a wide array of programs, obviously, and some programs are hyper competitive and very stressful and others are more focused on growth and, and everything in between. But at undergrad, I think there's such a pressure, um, especially for people who are planning on being performers that like, you better be in that practice room for eight hours a day and you better be perfect when you hit the stage. And that's, that pressure needs to be there to a certain extent, but forming the habits of if, if I'm not being productive anymore, I don't need to be unproductive for three more hours just right. because that's somebody, important. you know, <laughs> man, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. Finding ways to work, work efficiently and productively. Um, for me too, you know, I, I, I used to be a mix for 12 hours kind of guy and it, the last four hours were worthless or mm-hmm. sometimes even counterproductive. So, mm-hmm why would I keep doing that? You oh, know? Yeah. That's so, that's so true. And people don't realize how our, you talk about your the yeah. ears adapting over time, you know, try, try mixing a track for, you know, 12 hours and then going back and listening to the next day and go, <laughs> what did I do to this thing? Yeah. Oh, that's a bad feeling. I hate <laughs> yeah. it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Well, um, returns, yeah. You know, it, it, as a guy that, that does know a lot of the Behind the scenes, you know, turning the the, the musician into a magician, you know, yeah, a bit. Yeah. You kind know, of you kind of see the you know how the magic happens, you know, um, and and um, and by doing that, you know, you've you've over time really um, tuned your ears. You've really, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of a master, um, you know, that, that's a skill that that people, you know, that, yeah, that's very important. Um, maybe. Uh, if, if you don't mind, give our audience a few tips on how maybe, maybe not listen like an audio engineer, but how can they listen to, to music better or, or what are things that, that people can do to just appreciate, um, you know, what's going on in, yeah. in their listening experience? Yeah, I think, I think probably the biggest thing is uh, really realizing the difference between um, hearing and listening. We do so much hearing in our lives like we're in a department store and there's music playing. We're hearing it, that that um, modulating air pressure is hitting our eardrums. It's turning into nerve impulses. It's there, but we're not really listening to it. Listening is, is much more active than hearing. Uh, you know, that's sort of the way I break it down. It's active, uh, an active, engaging activity. And um, a lot of times it's really just moving distractions away. You know, if you're sitting down and you want to listen to a record and you really want to enjoy it, don't have the TV on, don't check your email, put your phone away. Um, because the more our brain has a limited bandwidth, there's only so much sensory information we can take in. And the more other sensory information we try to jam into our brain, uh, something's got to give. And, and unfortunately a lot of times it's, the sense of, of sound. Um, we sort of get distracted very easily by visual things. So removing distractions and focusing on listening. And then once you do that, start breaking it down, you know, listen to the voice and try to focus on the voice and then listen to the bass and try to focus on the bass. And a lot of times just telling ourselves, let's focus on this. It's no different than when we're at a party and our friends talking to us and we say, I'm going to focus on what he's saying and not the people spilling booze off, off in the corner. Right. right? We have the ability. We just, a lot of times don't use it. And, yeah. and I think that's it's one hard. of the it things. It takes energy. And, yeah. It does. It's exhausting. It does it's but exhausting. You know what? Like I, I remember as a kid, um, and it, it breaks my heart. I don't see my kids doing this, <laughs> but, but I remember, you know, having kind of a big, my, my dad had a nice little turntable, you know, and I'd, I'd get my rush album or yeah. you know, the star Wars album or whatever. And I'd literally put my feet against the speaker and, and turn off the lights and listen to to an entire album yes. without, or albums, plural. My friends, we would do that. We just sit there and just, we weren't talking. We we're just listening to music. And, and, um, that art has really disappeared in our kind of high, Go, go, go society. I, I think uh, I'll, I'll probably get some hate for this, but um, there's, you know, there's a vast contingent, a, a strong but vocal minority these days that swears that vinyl sounds better than digital. And yeah. I would argue that the big difference is not that it sounds better, but that vinyl was a format that forced you to listen actively. You didn't take 
the turntable in your car with you and listen while you were swearing at traffic on your commute. <laughs> you didn't listen to it on the subway. Yeah. You sat down and you listened to it. And I think, um, I think the biggest difference is in the fact that it really forced people to listen. That is a fascinating. That's take. interesting. I, yeah, I, I would. I wonder if um, there could be some sort of testing, you know, side by side and looking at the quality difference. And there might be, or but it's probably small. But the experiential difference is going to be huge. Yeah, I would. I would love at some point if I can convince some granting agency to part with uh, a substantial amount of <laughs> uh, monetary resource. I would love to, you know, yeah. to, to do that. Have have yeah. people listen to the same thing. Basically, yeah. set up a, a nice double blind uh, sort of placebo test, but have them engaging in other activities or, or distracted yeah. versus focused, and, and see if that's where the difference really comes from. I, I yeah, think it could be nice. done, but uh, it'd, it'd be interesting. It'd be yeah, it, it really would. But I, I think your advice is spot on. Like if, if we take just a, a moment um, just to sit and listen and, and try to active listen, I think that'll make a huge difference in that experience. And, and you'll appreciate everything about that experience better. Yeah. I, I love going back to old records that I never listened to that carefully and just putting them on. And I, I always discover something new. There's a tambourine part in the chorus that's buried. That's man, that's cool. You know, right. there's just some little ear candy thing that where if it wasn't there, you notice the difference. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. built perfectly, but it's out of the way enough that if you're not really carefully listening, it just flies under the radar. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Well, we're talking to Brett Leonard. He's the owner of BLP Audio. He's the director of music technology programs at University of Indianapolis. Um, among all of his great accomplishments, <laughs> you know, one of which is to be on this program. I Amen. appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate. I appreciate you taking the time to be on here, Brett. It's been ah, a, it's a pleasure. Again, so much fun. And and again, it's one of those things like it's funny, you know, kind of behind the scenes for our audience. Like we all kind of came on with kind of like, I'm not, we, we didn't really pre-plan this program, Yeah. Um, but, but audio is one of those things that's kind of unending. You can talk about that, you know, about, um, I certainly know, could. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, there, there's so much to it and there's so much more nuance than, than, uh, than realize, what we yeah. give credit to. So, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. Elias, thank you again. Yeah, thanks, Mike and Brett. It's awesome. Yeah, great seeing you guys again. Absolutely. We'll have to do it again. Um, Brett Leonard, yeah, uh, thanks again. This is Mike Levitt, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. <laughs>